The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We'll be looking this morning at verses 9 through 21. And as I continue to preach through the book of Revelation, as I come to this description of the new Jerusalem, as I come to words that just boggle the mind and stretch the imagination, this, this question has come in my mind, how do you describe the indescribable? How do you, how do you put into words the inexpressible? The Apostle Paul was caught up to the third heaven, was caught up to paradise, and he said that he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to talk about. And he was forbidden to write anything about what he saw in paradise, but here the Apostle John had a vision through the spirit of the New Jerusalem. And the image here is of a city that's coming, and essential to cities are buildings, architecture. And so we have an architectural, a spiritual architectural image of the New Jerusalem in in these verses. Now all my adult life I have enjoyed excellent architecture. I am not an architect. I'm more of an architect wannabe and never will be. I was a mechanical engineer and that's boring. It's needed. You can get a job. But it's just not exciting. Architecture is an amazing combination of science and art. The beauty of buildings crafted with a combination of engineering skill to be certain it doesn't fall down and crush the people that use it. And artistic beauty so the building doesn't assault your eye with its ugliness. But actually draws you and transports you in an artistic way. Function and form. So you have the science of materials and the strength of structural members like the I-beam and things like that. That would be boring to most of us but very essential. And trust me, you're glad about those structural members. Even though you know very little about them. Making sure that the building stands firm through all weathers and through all conditions. In Japan, even concerned about seismic shifts and, and earthquakes. But then there's the artistry of it. And that's undergone so many shifts over the centuries. Just different schools of architecture. Different artistic approaches to buildings. Classical, Baroque, Colonial, Victorian, Gothic, Renaissance, Romanesque. Even this building that we're in now called Greek Revival. Looks like a a Greek temple with the pillars out front. Oriental. Different approaches to architecture. So I've seen some amazing buildings in my life. I'm not going to mention Prague again. So I think I'm done with that for a while. But it's a beautiful city. But I've seen many other things. I love the St. Louis Arch. Maybe some of you have seen that. And it was built in the 1960s to commemorate St. Louis as the gateway to the West. And it's really a magnificent piece of architecture. You know, soars up hundreds of feet from the ground and made with, uh, with uh, steel and with a, a, glister- a glistening aspect. It's really quite elegant and beautiful. Uh, but then there's the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. that you've seen. It was built uh, during, finished during the American Civil War. And the Eiffel Tower that I saw last summer for the first time that was considered a monstrosity when it first went up. And now the Parisians can't live without it, obviously. It's a... It's a 
It's a landmark. And I saw the, the Big Ben, the Parliament, all of these things. I've been to the Osaka Castle in Japan, and it's really spe spectacular. And then the Forbidden City in Beijing. Just different approaches. I've never seen Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water in, in rural Pennsylvania, which just kind of integrated the uh, a mountain stream and the woods and the rocks with the house in an amazing and new way. Many of you have been out and paid a lot of money to tour the Biltmore Mansion out there. It's kind of an odd thing. Uh, this, um, it's beautiful, but it's like a French chateau in the, in the uh, Black Mountains of North Carolina. Elegance, ostentation, expanse. On the other hand, uh, as I was doing various mission trips in countries that were uh, behind the Iron Curtain, uh, I saw buildings that were built in Poland and Romania and Bulgaria and even in the Czech Republic uh, during that era that seemed to be on purpose ugly. Like there's, there's like no form at all. They're just structures built of cinder block and they're going to be there, I think, until the Lord returns. And they just seem to suck life out from you uh, through your eyes as you look at them. And I can't imagine being in that apartment building or in that, that business, that office a building that was built during the um, Cold War and having to look at that ugliness. So it's kind of interesting as we come to Revelation 21 and as God tries to describe what it's going to be like for all of us from every tribe and language and people and nation to live together, to be together. And the image here is architectural. It's like a spiritual structure that rises up in our minds as we look at these verses. And these verses, as I've said, they stretch human language and they stretch imagination really beyond the breaking point to some degree. So that we can merely say we can hardly imagine what that radiant city will be like. Perfect in form, perfect in function. A city whose architect and builder is God, as we're told in the book of Hebrews. And the account begins in verse 9 through 11 with the radiant glory of the city. The radiant glory. Look at verses 9 through 11. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Well, this account begins with an angelic guide, as often in the book of Revelation. This angel is identified as one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And so the, the backdrop of this radiant, spectacularly beautiful account is human wickedness and human rebellion and human sin that has been judged by the overwhelming wrath of God as we've seen week after week in the book of Revelation. And so we have mentioned the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And in this very chapter, the, the, the immediate verse that we just studied last time we were looking through the book of Revelation, verse 8. It says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
This is the second death. And so that's why there were seven bowls full of seven plagues of God. Because of the wickedness of the human race. It's interesting also to see the parallel, the strong parallel between this and the earlier description of the great whore of Babylon. If you could just put your finger here in Revelation 21 9 and go back and look at Revelation 17 1 and you can see the the comparison which we did at that time looking forward but now we're going to look back and the words are almost identical Revelation 17 1 one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me come I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters the great whore or the great prostitute of Babylon described in Revelation 17 and 18. And then again here in verse 9, if you look again at Revelation 21, 9, here are these words. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And we're going to see her glory. So the parallel is clearly intentional because the language is identical. The bride of Christ is the direct opposite of the whore of Babylon. The great whore of Babylon is dressed in spectacular, shimmering, gaudy jewelry and luxurious clothing. And she has an outward seductive allure. She is drunk with the wine of immorality and with the blood of the saints. She is a creature of pleasure and of vicious violence against the people of God. But the bride of Christ is depicted here radiant with a different kind of sparkle, a different kind of glory. The light of the glory of God is shining in her. It's the difference between perhaps a a rhinestone and a perfect diamond. And yet, every member of the body of Christ has been rescued out of the great whore of Babylon. Every single one of us was being sucked into that world system of wickedness and sin. That whirlpool of of wickedness. We were drawn down by it. And the sovereign grace of God reached down and rescued us out of it. We have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought over into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's how we became part of the bride of Christ. There but for the grace of God go I. As we look at the great whore of Babylon, we were part of that system. Now, the bride language used here, the city that is a bride, it's an amazing kind of combination of images here. The bride language flows from the Old Testament image of Israel as the bride of Yahweh, depicted in many places. Sometimes the people of God depicted as God's son, who he carries, and another place as his bride, whom he marries, especially in the book of Hosea. In the New Testament, this image is perfected in the book of Ephesians where Paul commands Christian husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He said later, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so we have that image there. And here the new Jerusalem is descending from God, descending out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, prepared for the wedding celebration and the eternal marriage. So the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has been preparing her in the heavenly realms for this final display of her glory. 
And so she descends. Now John is carried away by the Spirit to a mountain, great and high. Whereas the angel carrying John away in, in Revelation 17 is carried to a, a low-lying plain where he can see the great horror of Babylon. Here he's carried to an elevated lofty perch where he can look at her. So the new Jerusalem's not built on a mountain. It's not depicted that or at least it's not said here. He is seeing her from this mountain, visionary mountain. And Jerusalem is called here the holy city. The holy city. What an incredible expression. The word holy means separate unto God as his special possession. Free from all darkness. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And so she has been separated, perfectly separated from all wickedness and all darkness. And she is radiant with God's glory. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But she is holy. She's separated unto God as his special possession. And it's so beautiful because throughout history, cities have been the seat of wickedness, great wickedness, actually. The Tower of Babel shows the beginning of that link between human rebellion and sin and urban wickedness, urban crime, urban ugliness. You remember how the, the people of, of Babel said, come, let's build a tower that will reach up to heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the earth. And so it's a direct affront to the, the lofty glory of God. Just like, like uh, Satan who says in, in Isaiah 14, I will ascend, I will make myself like the Most High. I will sit on the throne and I will rule over all things. So the people of Babel were trying to do the same thing with this tower made of brick, thoroughly baked and covered with pitch. And so they're building this lofty tower in direct defiance of the, of the God of the universe. And so human cities have continued from that spirit of Babylon uh, to be cesspools of, cesspools of human wickedness and rebellion and pride. Technology, achievement, wealth, arrogance. Think about the city that never sleeps, whatever the city that is. And how nothing good happens after midnight. Think about the red light district or the back alley drug deals. A lurking, stalking, sleepless malice. Smell of human filth. The danger of human violence. These things are reasonable. In certain places, in certain cities, you would be warned to not go out at night. Unaccompanied. This is what Augustine calls the city of man. In all of its rebellion and ugliness and wickedness. But this is the holy city. So therefore, there's nothing intrinsic to cities to make them wicked. It's human sinfulness that's made them wicked. And we will be forever in a radiant city. And it will be spectacularly beautiful, this holy city. And how marvelous is the holy city, Jerusalem. How she, in Isaiah 1, was called a harlot. She was called defiled. How this faithful city has become a harlot. Isaiah 1 talking about Jerusalem, but now she is radiant and holy and beautiful. Now that is the power of the cleansing, atoning work of Jesus Christ. How he gave himself for her bride to make her holy. The holy city. And she is shining with the glory, the radiant glory of God. Look at verse 11. It's shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
So the city is shining. It's radiantly bright. There's a spiritual glow to this city that is the, the essence of the holiness of God and the beauty of God. We know that when God created the heavens and the earth, he said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light, and there was light. And he separated the light from the darkness, he called the light day, and he called the light good. Light is a complex physical phenomenon that scientists have been studying throughout the history of human science. Isaac Newton set up a, a prism and, and got the spectrum and uh, studied white light and optics, the science of optics was born. It's a pretty great thing to be the father of three sciences that give out PhDs. And Isaac Newton was the father of three sciences and so he's studying light. And then there's Albert Einstein that studied, you know, is light a particle? Is it a wave? What is it? And the quantum theory of physics started to come about at the beginning of last century and people have been studying light but we're going to see light forever and ever. This city is going to be radiantly glowing with the light of God, the light of the glory of God. And it's marvelous that God created light before he created light bearers. Creatures that give off light. So I remember I was having a discussion with an atheist, a visiting scholar at Duke. And we're having Bible studies. And this man said that there was a flaw in the book of Genesis. And that there's light, but there isn't the sun, the moon, and the stars until the fourth day. Mic drop. Gotcha. I'm like, well, over there at Duke, are there laboratories over there? Oh, yes. Are there any in the basement? Yes. Are there any windows in the basement? No. Is, is it total darkness? No. There are lights in the room. Oh, interesting how humans can do light without the sun, the moon, and the stars, but you think God can't? Let me tell you something. God does light very well. And he's going to do light very beautifully forever. He doesn't need the sun, the moon, and the stars. We'll get to that in later sermons. Not today. There's only so much I can do in the remaining time I have. But God doesn't need the sun, the moon, and the stars. He just says, let there be light, and there's light. And this new Jerusalem shines. It glows with the light of the glory of God. And we're told that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the radiance of God's glory. So all of the light that we see that is God, it comes to us through Christ. Christ shines the glory of God to us. And so... This new Jerusalem is going to shine with the glory of God ministrated to us through Jesus Christ. Now, we should not imagine that the brilliance of this light would be blinding, not at all. Actually, it will display the perfection of sight and the perfection of light. Seeing Christ as he really is will be the clearest we have ever seen anything. And will be the most pleasing seeing we can possibly imagine. It will bring us perfect pleasure to see that light. In this world... Brilliant light can be painful, actually destructive. But in that world, there will be no more pain. Rather, the radiant beauty of the new universe and the new Jerusalem will be perfect pleasure. The most pleasing sight, the most beautiful sight we can ever imagine. Now, this radiant glory illuminates everything in the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem, architecturally, in terms of its materials, is set up to be translucent or transparent, to shine the light through to others. And so everything just shimmers and glows and radiates with the light of God. So all the precious stones in the foundation of the wall would be totally dark were it not for the glory of God. They would have no light to show. 
and the streets of gold, which are mysteriously called transparent as glass, would be black and dead were it not for the glory of God. And though these things are not mentioned in Revelation 21 or 22, except the tree of life, any growing thing that will flourish in the new earth, all of the beauty of whatever eternal flowers there will be or plants, or any water, any rivers or lakes or ponds, will shimmer with the light of the glory of God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the lights of that place all around us will flow into our perfected eyesight. We'll be in resurrection bodies and have resurrection eyes. And we will see eternal glory. And Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be filled with light. Well, let me tell you something. Your eyes will be good. (laughs) And therefore, your whole body will be filled with the light of the glory of God. It says in Matthew 13, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now it says that this new Jerusalem will be like a clear jasper stone. The glory of the new Jerusalem is said to be precious, meaning valuable, like a precious gem. And so it's likened to a jasper clear as crystal. Now this is a bit strange. Jasper is a form of quartz, usually appearing in a reddish color and often with streaks or spots that make it interesting, appealing, fascinating. That's the appeal to jasper back in that day. It's formed by mineral-rich volcanic sediments coagulating in unpredictable patterns. However, like many physical aspects of John's description, this is a different kind of jasper. This is perfectly clear. Perfectly clear. Clear as crystal. So we could liken it more to a diamond with no inclusions. A perfectly radiant diamond with no flaws. So despite the fact that the new Jerusalem is made up of redeemed sinners like you and me, the purification of the bride by the blood of Christ is so total, so complete, the radiance of the glory of God will be undimmed by any any spot or blemish in me or you. But it will shine with the glory of God. Now in verses 12 through 14, we have described the wall and its gates, the wall and the gates of the holy city. Look at the verses. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we come to the wall. Now, ancient cities had walls for protection. At nighttime, the gates would be shut to keep wild animals out, to keep wicked people out, brigands and marauders, bandits, and especially invading armies. And if there were an invading army, the safest place for the populace would be inside the walled fortress. So it's a picture of absolute safety. Before gunpowder, before artillery made such fortresses obsolete in the 15th century, behind the mighty wall, a high wall of stone was the safest place you could be to face an enemy and a threat. Now this wall is a surprising feature of the New Jerusalem because it seems unnecessary. All the enemies of the city 
will have been thrown into the lake of fire from which there can be no escape. We're told later in this account that the gates of the city will never close. Look at verse 25. We're not doing that today, but just look at it briefly. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. So the gates are always open. Just as Isaiah 60 verse 11 predicted about the future glory of Zion, your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. But this wall is said to be great and high, a massive barrier, impenetrable. Meditating on the wall of the New Jerusalem has led many commentators to believe that the entire layout, indeed this entire section that I'm preaching on today is symbolic. Just symbolism, because it just doesn't really line up. It's symbolic and spiritual. And, here's the key, not literal. I'm saying, why can't it be both? Why can't it be symbolic, spiritual, and literal? But they point out that the wall is impossibly short compared to the height of the city. And we'll get to that, but let me tell you, the height of the city is impressive. 12,000 stadia straight up off the surface of the earth. That's 1,400 miles up. And the wall is measured at 144 cubits. So whether that's the thickness or the height, I actually drew it like the geek I am. And I'm like, you can't even see the wall. It's so tiny. So people struggle with it. But the wall, I think, is symbolic of a couple things. One is outside and you need to enter. And ultimately, Jesus is the doorway for the sheep. And only by Christ can you enter. So you need to enter the kingdom of God. No one is born into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again into the kingdom of God. By repentance and faith in Christ, do you enter this city? You have to enter it. Now look at the gates in verse 12 and 13. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Now the gate of the city is the way by which you can enter and leave. It's also the place where official business was transacted in that ancient Near Eastern setting. People would go to the city gates and there you'll be honored to do business. And here especially is the right to enter. Now we know that after Adam sinned on behalf of all of us in the garden, and he ate from the tree, the forbidden tree, he and Eve were evicted from the garden of Eden. And so that he would not reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever, there was put there a, an angel, a cherubim with a flashing sword, flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. But now we have been given, we who are Christians, we have been given, listen to this, the right to enter and to eat from the tree. We have the right to enter and to eat from the tree. In the next chapter, Revelation 22, 14 and 15, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So outside are all the wicked, inside are the redeemed, who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So I I just want to stop and make an appeal to you. If you know now, you know you're on the outside. You know you're on the outside. You're not a Christian. You've never come to faith in Christ. 
may I say today the doorway is open for you. All you have to do is repent and believe, trust in Christ, and you will enter now by faith spiritually, and later you will enter physically. So trust in Jesus. Just repent of your wickedness. Repent of the ways you violated God's laws, and trust in Christ, and his blood will cleanse your robes from wickedness, and you will have the right to eat from the tree and live forever. Jesus is the gate for the sheep. He said in Matthew chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So, in John's vision, however, there's not just one gate, but there are 12 gates. Three in the north, three in the, three in the east, three in the north, three in the south, three in the west. And each of the gates is labeled with one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. I believe this shows a continuity of God's covenant work. How God made a promise to Abraham that through his offspring, all peoples on earth would be blessed. Abraham is called, therefore, the father of many nations. We who have repented and believed in Jesus, though we are from many different ethnic backgrounds, many different backgrounds, we are all counted sons and daughters of Abraham through faith in Christ. Says this in Galatians 3 7, understand that those who believe are children of Abraham. And so these, these names honor the grace shown to Israel and through them to us. We are all sinners saved by grace. When I was an engineering student at MIT, there's a, a, a courtyard there called the Killian Court. And it was built, a series of buildings uh, were built there in 1915. They were dedicated. And there, were, there are inscribed in Killian Court the names of some of the great figures of science up to that point. And so they, they polled the, the faculty and came up with the key names that would be in really big font. And then a lot of other names that would be in smaller font. And MIT students walk under those names day after day to get to their classes. And so, so the, the, the really big letter names are Aristotle, Newton, Lavoisier, Franklin, Pasteur, Faraday, Archimedes, Darwin, Copernicus, and Da Vinci. So that's what passed for scientific greatness in 1915. And they're honored by having their names there. But we know that the, the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob were sinners Saved by grace. And why the the points of the compass? East, north, south, west. Three on each times four is 12. I was going to say it's just because it's random. And so we're not looking for any kind of zodiac or any kind of symbolic pattern. I thought that until about 10 minutes before I came up to preach. Now I have a different idea. By the way, the book of Revelation is continually working in my brain. It never stops. I wake up in the morning and I think about the book of Revelation. But didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 8, I tell you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the four points of the compass say that this gospel has spread to the ends of the earth. And people have come from all over the world to enter this new Jerusalem. How majestic is that? So that's better than what I was going to say, so I said it. (laughs) Verse 14, the foundation of the wall has 12 foundations, and on them are written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this gives a a feeling of massive stability. 
It's just not moving. There's no concern for earthquakes or plate tectonics. This thing is eternal and permanent. And we're told in Ephesians 20 that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So I think this means that you've got Old Testament represented by the 12 descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then you've got the New Testament believers represented by the 12 apostles. And so that's the continuity of the people of God, all of them together, 12 and 12 together. But also that the apostles, in their eyewitness to the life, the teachings, the miracles, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, that's the basis on which the rest of us get saved. Because they wrote down what they saw, because they were eyewitnesses of his glory, because they wrote Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and these accounts, and they wrote down what they saw with their eyes and handled with their hands and heard with their ears because they wrote it down. It's based, our faith is based on something that isn't moving. As you heard from Anya, it's based on historical truths that can never be shaken. Now look at the dimensions of the holy city, verses 15 through 17. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. So the angel does the measuring. And this is similar to the elaborate measurements that the angel does in Ezekiel 40 and 41, in which the angel takes a rod and measures everything to do with the visionary temple there in Ezekiel 40 through 48. The walls, the gates, the porticos, the alcoves, the courtyards, all measured. Now this angel has a rod of gold to do these measurements. And he measures the entire city, especially its gates and its walls. Now, this act of measurement, it's an act of science, really. But it gives a sense of of the reality, the physicality of this place. But also its limitations, its boundaries. So we will be radiantly glorious in our resurrection bodies. But we will not be gods and goddesses. There is a limit to us. We are creatures. And even in our perfected states, we have limits surrounding our eternal lives. There are boundaries that we are assigned by God. The boundary lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, Psalm 16 says. And so there is a limit, a finiteness and a reality. And it's fixed by the purpose of God. Now, we see a little bit of the layout of the city here, urban planning. Urban planning is a major science, and when leaders of a, of a new city or, or extension part of the city get together, they want to turn to civil engineers and urban, urban planners that know how to lay out a city. Now, my home, hometown of Boston is very poorly laid out. Some say that the roads are paved cow paths. I think they're probably more paved deer paths. But I, I understand there's like, I don't think there's a single perpendicular intersection in the back bay section, at least, where I, I was. Although there is somewhat of a grid for a while, and then forget it. But that's Boston. If you look at Washington, D.C., there was a science to what was laid out as President Washington wanted a, a capital city. 
and he contracted a Frenchman named Pierre-Charles L'Enfant in 1791, and it's laid out, and he made the mall the center of its egalitarian vision of human government. So there's a definite plan there. Now this eternal city, the New Jerusalem, the capital city, has been very well planned. It's been planned by the ultimate urban planner, the ultimate architect, the architect of the city is God. Now, we don't know much about the streets, but we know there's one main great street going right down the center of the city. We'll talk more about that in the next chapter. But the dimensions here are mind-boggling, absolutely mind-boggling. The city is laid out as a square in its footprint, perfect square, sense of perfection. But it's also just simply massive in scope. No city in human history even comes close. 12,000 stadia on a side. Now, a stadion, singular, is about 607 feet. For that, so that's uh, two football fields, one stadium. So 12,000 of these is just shy of 1,400 miles on a side for a city. So I had some fun with this um, as I was trying to figure this out. So I was, I was saying, where would it be if we were here in the triangle, whatever, but it's... It would be, it's too far north at that point. We had to shift it down, okay? Because you don't want to be up in north, north, northern Canada because that's where you would be. So I shifted it down and put one terminus at Orlando, Florida. Not for any reason, just stuck it there. And then as you go along 1,400 miles, you end up somewhere in Texas, like El Paso or something like that. So there's one leg of it. And you go straight up from El Paso, Texas to the Canadian border with Montana, or North Dakota, somewhere in there. And then you go east to finish the square to a small place in Canada called Val d'Or, Quebec, north of Ottawa. Probably a logging camp or something like that. I don't want to be insulting to anyone from Val d'Or, but it's just a small place. It would take up, the footprint would take up effectively half of continental, eastern continental United States, one city. Massive. And even more amazing, John tells us that it's a perfect cube. Length, width, height, 1,400 miles up. Now, some people think that this is patterned after the Holy of Holies, uh, 1 Kings 6.20, in which the Holy of Holies, the place where the, the Ark of the Covenant was, where the blood of the sacrifice was, was put, was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, overlaid with gold. Now, the height is just incomprehensible. The International Space Station orbits the earth 150 miles above the surface of the earth. 150. This is going up like about 10 times higher than that. We are way out into outer space. At the standard 10 feet per floor, a skyscraper it would be 700,000 floors, stories. An elevator <laughs> taking you to the top floor would take a long time. 700, I'd like to go to the 700,000th floor, please. Imagine the buttons. <laughs> the fastest elevator in the world is in Shanghai, 40 miles an hour. Borderline uncomfortable. <laughs> All right, imagine traveling 1,400 miles at 40 miles an hour. Imagine driving from Orlando. Some of you may have done it. Um, <laughs> if you are very conservative drivers. That's a 35-hour trip to the top floor. I was talking to Calvin, and he said they better have some good in-elevator movies or in-elevator <laughs> entertainment. 
Henry Morris, uh, in his book on Revelation, Revelation Records, said, however, a different possibility. The new bodies of the resurrected saints will be like those of angels, no longer limited by gravitational or electromagnetic forces as at present. It would be as easy for the inhabitants to travel vertically as horizontally in the New Jerusalem. Consequently, the streets of the city may well include vertical passageways as well as horizontal avenues, and the city blocks might actually be more like city cubes. I have no idea. But let me say something about how do you take this literally or figuratively, spiritually, or should we say and? John MacArthur said this, human language is inadequate to fully describe the unimaginable magnificence of the believer's indescribable eternal home. Unwilling to take the language of scripture at face value, many seek for some hidden meanings behind John's descriptions. But if the words do not mean what they say, then listen to this, who has the authority to say what they do mean? Abandoning the literal meaning of the text only leads to groundless, futile speculation. The truth about the heavenly city is more than is described, but it is not less than, nor is it different from what is described. So just because the numbers are symbolic, 12,000 is a very symbolic number, 12, significant number, and then 10 cubed after that. And then the 144 cubits for the wall, it's 12 squared. We understand, but that doesn't mean they're not literal as well. God can do both literal and symbolic at the same time. Now, the building materials of the city depict the radiant glory of the people of God. Look at verses 18 through 21. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold is pure as glass. The foundation of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each gate was made of a single pearl, and the great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. Now everything here, all this precious value, has as its core understanding translucence or transparency. It's all about the glory of God in us. Now with transparency every, everywhere, there will be no privacy in the city. But you won't need it. You won't have the same bodily needs you have now. Marriage will have been fulfilled by then. And we will be like angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. And we'll have no dark secrets to hide from anybody. So it's just a transparent life. Shining with the glory of God. Now, the preciousness and variety of these building materials speaks to, I believe, the amoral cultural diversity of the people of God. We come from every tribe and language and people and nation. We look different from each other. We have different answers to problems like architecture and food and clothing. We answer them differently. And this amoral diversity, and I have to just rescue the word diversity back from the way the pagans have grabbed it. But this beautiful diversity will shine, will shine in the kingdom of heaven. And it's so beautiful how we see the spectrum. You know the spectrum? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. You can line up these precious stones with each of those colors. Each of them are representative. Represented. Some time ago I preached a sermon entitled, The Cross, a Prism for God's Glory. Like Isaac Newton did those experiments with white light. And it broke out into the spectrum. You can see all of the glory of God in the cross. Every individual attribute of God. You can see his justice, his wrath, his patience, his love, 
his power in the cross. Friends, you can see the same thing in the church of Jesus Christ. And so we are going to shine radiantly but differently from one another, together making up the beauty of the new Jerusalem. Finally, we have the pearly gates. Have you ever heard of the pearly gates? All right. The pearly gates are astonishing. I've already mentioned them in previous sermons, but I'll say again. Pearl is made uh, probably one of the most precious things in the ancient world. It's made because some particulate, some grain of sand got inside an oyster and the oyster protected itself by covering it layer by layer by layer by layer with this shimmering hard substance called conchiolin. And just like you can see, like the rings of a tree. And so it testifies to the greatness of the suffering that has gone into building the kingdom of God. First and foremost, Jesus' suffering. But Paul said, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my body what is still lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So the blood of martyrs is seed for the church. And so there's been all kinds of labor and suffering that have gone into building the place. And every time we walk by those massive pearly gates, we will be reminded of the beauty that came from suffering. All right, applications. First, meditate on heaven. Just do what I've been doing. Do your own version of it. Uh, Friday morning, I was out with my daughter Daphne, and we went to Hillsboro, and we got some coffee together and some, well, she got hot chocolate. Um, But then we went for a walk in this beautiful kind of reserve there called Air Mount. It's a beautiful place uh, with a, a... pond and a little river and some woods and it was just a beautiful shimmering kind of morning and we're walking down the path called the poet's walk and it was just one of those spectacular glistening shining mornings and I was thinking about the book of Revelation which I do all the time and we came to an opening a field and the sunlight was just shining and I I held Daphne's hand we stood side by side I said close your eyes we're going to pray So we just closed our eyes. And you know how you can see the sunlight through closed eyes. And it was just so beautiful. And I was praying about the New Jerusalem. I was praying about And we were there and praying. And then I felt this bumping on my my thigh. And I looked down and she said, Dad. And there was a woman standing there with a dog watching us. (laughs) I don't know how long she was there. Because we were praying for a while. And that was a bit awkward. It was an awkward moment. (laughs) And she said, you look so prayerful, I didn't want to disturb you. But I just think, couldn't we have our hearts, our souls, just filled with joy and hope at where we're going? And couldn't that drive out sin? Couldn't it drive out depression? Couldn't it drive out sadness, worldly sadness and discouragement? Couldn't it be a light that attracts people who are right now on the outside, who don't have hope? who don't have forgiveness, couldn't that attract people to Christ? If we would be more filled with a joy, an inner light of this beautiful place to which we're going. I guess the final application, I know I'm over time, but could we just be active as witnesses? Can we share the gospel? I've already shared this morning with any of you who are on the outside looking in, but Come on Wednesday night. Learn how to use. I think the workplace may be one of the best places to do evangelism in America. It's a phenomenal place.
qualities. People get to know you. They see the way you live. You can talk. You can do some gradual witnessing. So come on Wednesday night, 6.30, if you can make it. Next is these folks are experts at business for transformation. Please come. I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to walk through these verses. We may never have this opportunity again. And I thank you for the chance we've had to look line by line at at each of the aspects of this new Jerusalem. Father, I pray that you would please strengthen our imagination, strengthen our sense and our faith so that we may shine with the glory of hope so that people who are without hope and without God in the world may see something different in us and ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.